So you can open with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read the text and then we'll walk through it and pick out certain places to highlight. So John chapter 3. Austin finished with 21. We're going to pick up at 22 through 36. So you can follow along with me as I read this. So John's giving us a setting. He's setting up the scene here. He says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So this was, this was some time that he was there. I don't know exactly how much, but sources say that he had spent some considerable time here during his ministry. It says John was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put into prison. We know that that's coming. We know that John will eventually lose his head, lose his life for the sake of the gospel, essentially. But that has not yet come. So both are baptizing. Not Jesus, because verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 says that Jesus was not baptizing, but his disciples, right? So the disciples are baptizing, and John is baptizing. Both are taking place because there's just a lot of people coming as they responded to what was taught in John chapter 3 about belief and God's love and all of these things. So now a discussion, verse 25, arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me read that last line one more time, because this is where we're going to conclude. But I want to set you up. I want you to see where we're going to get initially uh, or uh, eventually, because this is important. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It doesn't say whoever does not obey, or it doesn't say whoever does not believe the Son right here shall not see life. I think the wording is very intentional. It says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey. What is obedience? Obedience is the byproduct or the litmus test of true, authentic belief. So he's not just talking about a head knowledge. He's not just talking about a recognition of something that is true, a thing that is true. He's not talking about that. But there's a different type of belief, a belief that necessitates obedience. He said, if that person doesn't have obedience, but they say they have belief, the wrath of God abides on them. 
So this is John's message, and it's interesting because John is set apart as the forerunner for Christ, right? John is out in the wilderness. He's the one that Isaiah spoke of over 700 years prior and says, Behold the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, saying, Make ye or prepare the way of the Lord. And John has come. He has done these things. He has told them, I am the one. I am the voice. I'm the one who is crying in the wilderness. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. And we saw all up, in this, all up to this point, John is boasting in Jesus. John is always laboring to take the attention off of himself, which you think about it. I mean, he's, it's easy for him to draw attention. I mean, he's a wild man. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wore camel's hair. He lived out in the wilderness. Strange guy, boisterous guy. He's going to draw attention. People are going to look at him. People are going to wonder what's going on. So much that the priests and the Levites head over to where John was, and they're making inquiry as to what he's doing, as we saw in the previous chapters. So John is someone to call attention to himself just by his actions, but John is also the one to say, you know what, I want you to focus on the point of the story, the point of life, the one that I'm preparing the way for because that's what you're most interested in at the end of the day. It's not the person that lays out the red carpet, but the person for whom the red carpet was laid, or was laid out, right? So my objective today is to show how John's behavior brought less attention to himself and more attention to Jesus. And I think John's behavior, I think, is a template for what our behavior should be as followers of Christ. I think we see this, and I think there's some key verses that we need to make into the mantra of our lives as we look at this text, and we cling to these, we apply these, we make these a part of how we live, move, and have our being. So here's the setting, not forgetting that Jesus just blew everyone's mind as far as what it is to have true hope, to have true life. Here it is, Jesus, this common person, this person who had been there for a long time, but nobody paid much attention to because he's just a carpenter. He's just Mary's boy, and now here he is saying things that spat directly in the face of Judaism. Judaism built on rituals and works, and it's empty, and Jesus is pointing it out, saying these things are empty. These things will bring you no dividends. They will bring you no hope, no joy. It is empty, but I will give you something that will be complete for you. And he starts talking about the love of God, which they're familiar with God, right? He starts talking about the love of God, and he says, and here's the love of God. Here is the love of God on display. Here it is. You ready for this? Here's how you know that God is a God of love. Because he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And he goes through that dialogue. He goes through that talk as, he's, as we're reading John chapter 3, the fundamentals of Christian faith. We get that. We see it. Like, yes, this is what it is. And this radically disrupted all things during this time. And as a result of this teaching, as a result of the power of the gospel, what happens is people come in droves to be baptized. They come in droves to be baptized. And they're responding to the gospel being preached. So this is the scene, but I want to mention a few things before we kind of get into some of these verses that I really want to dissect for you and show you some good application I do think it's interesting that here it says that John and Jesus, or the disciples, were baptizing in the place called Enon, which is a place where water is plentiful. When I was in Guatemala a few years back, there was um, the, the, the missionary house that we stayed, or the missions, mission, missions or missionary house that we stayed in as a group was on the property of a coffee plantation. 
It is said to be some of the best coffee in Guatemala. And they have a rating system for all that. I can't remember because it was a few years ago, but it scored really, really, really high on their rating system. It's fantastic coffee. Those of you that know me well know that I'm kind of a coffee nut slash snob. And it was absolutely great, great coffee, you know. And so we go on this tour of the coffee plantation, and he's talking about things, and they call the coffee Anon coffee. I'm like, hmm, well, that's interesting. So he begins to tell the story. And when they started doing their coffee there, a problem occurred, and that was that they were running out of water. The spring that they were using to get their water to do what they had to do was going to dry up. And they kind of had a big problem. Do we move this whole organization? Because it had become a big, booming business. I mean, they are doing tremendously well now through their coffee. But if you don't have the water, then you've got a bit of a problem. And so what they began to do is just pray. And they pray and they ask God, will you provide water for us? We need this water. We don't want to move this land or we don't want to move from this land. We really feel like, God, you gave this land to us. We don't want to go anywhere. They began to pray. And just as the well began or just as the spring began to dry up, they found more springs. And so the water became abundant for them. The water became plentiful for them. So this is what's interesting to me. The point of this text is not to say, baptism is by immersion and that's the only acceptable mode now i do believe that but that's not the point of the text the point of the text is not to argue for what the mode of baptism should be but i just want you to know that if you're ever wrestling with it because it is a big deal it's not salvific but it is a big deal you go to texts like this and you have to ask the question why would john and why would the disciples be baptizing and why was it not why were they baptizing but why would it be important that they would be baptizing in a place that is abundant with water if all it took was a spritz or a sprinkle why would it be so important that they would be somewhere or why would it be made mention of that the place was abundant i just think that's a strong go-to passage for that because i am a proponent of uh, baptism by immersion as the proper mode and there are more things to say about that but that's not the point of the text but it's there just wanted you to see it all right, so what's also interesting is the fact that they're baptizing. This is a pre-Christian baptism. You'll notice something, if I fast forward a little bit, that John, um, that, that Jesus, before he finally leaves the scene, he calls his disciples together and he gives them what? The great commission. And he tells them to do what? He tells them to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There you have baptism as an ordinance. There you have baptism that is a Christian baptism People weren't called Christian until the book of Acts, as Luke records, but it was at that point when Jesus referenced baptism that we have a Christian baptism that is symbolic of what Christ has done, symbolic of the gospel. But before that, it was a little bit different. This is a weird place where they're baptizing. This is, uh, baptizing. This is called a Johannine baptism, which is the baptism of John. While they say Johannine, I don't know, but that's what it's called. And so there was some symbolism there. There was a purification element there that didn't literally purify but it was symbolic so it was kind of akin but it was a pre-christian baptism and all of this began way back in the book of leviticus and deuteronomy where the priests are told to bathe for purification and then you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that compiled to a great period of time, and now John is preaching this message of repentance, and John is saying, look, you need to be baptized. Even as a pre-Christian baptism, before Jesus arrived on the scene, John is baptizing, hence the name John the Baptist. And that's not primarily what this text is about either, but just know there's a transition happening here coming from Johannine baptism to 
Christian baptism. That is representative of something that has already taken place, whereas the former was more of something that is to come. All right, so a little nuance there, but something happening. Because I've always asked the question, why are they baptizing? You know, it, what is it symbolizing? Jesus hasn't come and he hasn't gone. He hasn't died and he hasn't, is it, is it foreshadowing? I mean, there's a lot of questions that I've always had about that. But I just wanted to give a brief mention about that. There's a transition happening between John's baptism and the baptism of Christ. And later the, and I say baptism of Christ as in when he commissioned his disciples. So there's your setting. Baptism's happening. Now Jesus has just said all these things. Jesus has just stirred the pot as he does in a good way. And so people are responding. They're coming to be baptized. Well, the scripture tells us that some of John's disciples, they took issue with what was happening. They took issue with the fact that John was this forerunner. John was kind of leading this charge. He was preparing the way. People were coming to John. John was baptizing. John was doing the faithful good work. And now all of a sudden, less or fewer and fewer people are coming to John, and more and more people are coming to Jesus. And John's disciples, who had this conversation with a Jew, probably a priest, probably a Levite, probably of the same group that came the first time when they were asking questions about what John was saying, there's this discussion about the purification. What are you doing? They're having all these questions. What is happening here? Because you can't ignore what's happening here in the first century. You can't just ignore that all these things are exploding. And it says there was this discussion that arose between John's disciples and Jews over, or, and a Jew over purification. But what's interesting is, and we'll get to that in a minute, what's interesting is how John responds to their questions. So there's a few things I want to show you. First of all, it's very simple. If you're taking notes, you can think of it this way. What happens is the gospel is on the ground. The gospel's moving. The gospel's affecting change. You should always anticipate that the gospel will do one or two things when you are out and being intentional about it in your life and in your words. You should expect that either there will be a good response or that there will be a negative response. That there are those that will embrace it and it will be a source and a means of joy, but there will also be a source and means of hostility, anger, resentment for other people. The gospel is good news, but to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. We understand this. Until faith is awoken, until grace and faith are imparted as a gift, Ephesians 2, until that happens, people don't respond and people don't get it because they cannot, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians. It's impossible for them. So it's causing a bit of a stir. Some of these disciples of John are seeing this thing happen right in front of their eyes where they're like, why is everybody coming to you? There's a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy that has taken root in their heart because they were used to everybody coming to John. John was the man on campus. John was the man that people wanted to talk to. John was the one doing the dipping and the sending away. And now all of a sudden, John is an afterthought. And Jesus is receiving all the attention. And to be quite honest, John's disciples don't like it too much. It doesn't set well with them. Maybe it was an offense to them. Rather than seeing it as this great, good thing, they respond with questions that are probably most likely rooted in jealousy. And this is how John responds. John responds and he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now put yourself in the context for just a second. Think about it. John could have responded a number of different ways, but what John says 
is everything that I've done was given to me. Any accolades that someone might have offered my way don't go to me. Because I don't have anything. I don't have a voice. I don't have a message. I don't have anything unless it was first given to me by God. Given to me by heaven. John's response is with absolute humility. Absolute humility. This is why I think these next six verses, these next, not six verses, these next six sentences provide for us what should be the mantra of every follower of Christ. So now that you've, you've had a little bit of the warm-up, I want you to key in with me. I want you to pay attention because these next six sentences are what I want you to go away with and say, you know what, is this indicative of my life? This is kind of a list for you that you should apply to your life and say, you know what, if I'm a follower of Christ, if I am an authentic follower of Jesus, these should be things that are markings in my life. And they're just straight from the text. So here they are. So John, first of all, he responds in that way. I said, nothing Nothing came to me unless it was first given to me from heaven. Hear the humility. Hear what he's saying. This includes our gifts. This includes our talents. This includes promotions. This includes good health, parenthood, of course, salvation. Salvation belongs to God is what the scripture says. All things, all good things come from him. It says that multiple times in the text. So this is a simple but true reality that the authentic follower of Christ must understand. And I use the term authentic follower of Christ because today's world of pseudo-Christianity or nominal Christianity or consumerist Christianity are kind of what you see everywhere you go. Someone says, yes, I'm a believer, I'm a follower. You have to just dig in. I'm learning that you just can't take people at their word. You just can't come to someone and say, hey, do you you trust Jesus? Well, yeah. Where's the evidence? What about, what about where John says, if a person believes he has God, but a person who does not obey the wrath of God remains on him. There should be something in the life of an alleged believer that points us to Jesus. If someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and what they're doing is building their own legacy, building their own name, then they're building themselves up as an idol and as the greatest treasure rather than pointing the world to Jesus as the greatest treasure. And that's a problem, and it's a contradiction to Christianity. Now, Christians fall into this trap, so I'm not saying anyone who's ever made an idol of themselves is not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But if that's your pattern, or if that's the pattern of someone who proclaims to be a follower of Jesus, I would submit to you that they are in line with what the Scripture says when it says that no one who makes a practice of sinning can be born of God, 1 John. So this is a big issue. This is something that Christians should really consider. Authentic Christianity recognizes the source from which all good things are received. Because Christians don't pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Christians can't work hard, hard, hard all day, all their life, get these accolades, get these promotions, get all this, get all that, and say, look what I've done. You just can't do that. And why would a Christian ever do that? When instead, we should say, you know what God has done? And he's done these things for himself. He's done these things for his glory. And this is exactly what John is doing. When they're stirring the pot, when the seeds of envy, when the seed of jealousy most likely was planted and his disciples, saved or not, they could still be jealous. What's going on? We've worked hard. We've done these things. As a Christian, I like the affirmation of men. As a Christian, I would assume you like the affirmation of men. 
Who doesn't like someone to say, man, you've done such a good job. You're such a valuable asset to our team. And recognition is good. Affirmation is good. Don't get me wrong. But it can be to a degree that we start to believe that we've actually brought something in and of ourselves to the table to contribute. When nothing a man has that is good, everything that, well, I should say everything that a man has that is good is given to him from heaven. This is what John says. So his response is vital. Humility should be one of the most dominant attributes displayed by the Christian because we have everything to be humble about. Everything. It's interesting that Jesus, who humbled himself, had nothing, zero, goose egg, to be humble about. I mean, he's the king of kings. He's sovereign over all things. He was the one worthy to receive the scroll and to break its seals. Jesus is the one that heaven redirected its worship and focused on him and sang a new song. I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who came as a lamb sufficient for the sins of the world, and yet he's also coming back as the lion to administer and dispense absolute judgment. Jesus had nothing to be humble about, but he humbled himself. We have everything to be humble about. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that was just broken. I'm not saying it's a good thing to watch. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm saying it's interesting. When you see someone who was up here boasting in themselves, saying, I'm God's gift to God himself. I'm all these great things. And then you see them broken. You see them shattered. It's an interesting thing to see. It's an interesting thing to see. There's a story of a, of a young man who was going up to preach, and he was very proud before he went up there. I don't mean proud as in God's, 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 God's grace has brought me here. I'm so, I'm so proud. There's a good sense of pride there. But this was an arrogance. This was a, hey, I'm the man for the job. I'm the one that should be here. And this young man goes up to preach, and he just flops. I mean, he just, he just destroys everything he tries to say. I mean, it was just a train wreck to watch. And the guy's countenance completely changed. His disposition and demeanor completely changed. I mean, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to stand up here and think that you've got things going on in your brain, and then you're just surviving, basically. And you can't wait to leave the place and have another shot at it next Sunday. I know that. If you are a speaker to any regularity, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe at your job performance, you're like, you know what, I've worked for this, I'm going to make this presentation. You know, I've worked hard, I'm going to go for a bit of this promotion. And then it just bombs. And then you have to deal with that, the fallout of that. You just feel so just rotten. I know that feeling. And so this young man, he goes up there and he preaches, and it's just a mess and he comes down, and he looks like a man who's been beaten within an inch of his life, and he had nothing. And he came, and he sat by the guy that was with him before he got up. And that guy looked at him, and he said, if you would have walked up there the way you walked down, you would have walked down the way that you walked up. He's saying, if you would have went up there with humility, and you would have said, you know what, by the grace of God, I will say what I can say, but I have to trust God to do anything and everything, because Anything good isn't from me, but it comes from heaven. It's given from heaven. Anything and everything that's good. Then it would, you would walk down with that good pride, with the pride that says, thank you, God. I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of your team. I'm so proud to be used by you. I'm so proud that you are who you are and that you're making me more like Jesus. I've seen humility. We were, I was playing I was playing. I was playing real man sports soccer when I was in high school, and just 
enjoyed soccer so much, but our rival, if you've played high school sports, well, it doesn't matter, whatever sport, you know, they've all got their rivals. But ours was Columbus High School, okay? I don't even remember their mascot. You know why? Because they're not worth remembering. So it's Columbus High School versus the New Hope Trojans. And we were in a battle to the death on the soccer field. It was, the, it was, it was, it was super great. We were both going to the playoffs. Well, this was going to determine which one of us would go to the playoffs. And they had beaten us earlier that year, and we always went back and forth playing each other, and one would beat one, and one would beat the other the next time. And we were doing really well that year, and we were thinking, you know what, this might be our year. We're going we're gonna to give it to Columbus High School, and then we're going to go to the playoffs, and we're going to be good Christian young men and say, you know what, God bless your efforts, but you just didn't make it. And we're going to go, and we're going to represent Jesus as we win the playoffs. Well, that night came, we played each other, and it was a tie at the end. Well, you don't leave soccer at a tie. You do a shootout, all right? It sounds tough, doesn't it, a shootout, like high noon? No, it's a shootout, right? So you pick your best strikers to do a penalty kick, kind of a shootout. And then you have like four guys or five guys, I can't remember, and they each take turns. Your goalie's there, your guys are kicking, they're getting ready, and you're hoping that they make it. We miss one, they make one, they miss one, we make one, and it stays tied, and it's down to the last kick. They had missed just enough that if we made this kick, we win. I mean, this is a nail-biter. I can see it in your faces. I mean, you're excited. won't know what's happening here. This is great. The, 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 crowd, the crowd was going wild, all 60 of them. I mean, it was, the, it was the greatest thing. You know, it was just the funnest thing. We're talking smack back and forth through the whole game. Yeah, well, your mama. You know, we're getting at it. You know, it's a fun time. You know, I mean, maybe a fight or two broke out, but this was the nature of this rivalry. And it came to that last kick, and we win. It, we win. I mean, I feel tears. I feel tears welling up. You know, so excited. We won. And how did we respond to that? Like we should have responded. We were jumping up and down, throwing our T-shirts in the air, in a huddle, saying, ole, 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 because clearly we're, you know, not from America. So we're doing all this. You know, we're just mimicking whatever we've seen those do in World Cups when they score. You know, we're getting behind each other, and we're grabbing each other's ankles, and we're forming this giant centipede, and we're just doing all this. All the while, watching Columbus High just walk off the field with their heads hung low. They were humbled that night because the dominating Trojans put a beating on them. So I've seen humility. Maybe we should have practiced a little of our own, but they were broken. They were talking smack, and they were broken. And I have this image. I'm not saying it's a great thing. I tell this story because I have this image in my mind of they were absolutely defeated in more ways than one. They were humbled because they were talking trash. And then they were fed that trash. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we lost in the playoffs. Everybody gets humbled at some point. As Christians, we have everything to be humble about. Everything to be humble about. We weren't attractive. We were dead, and death is not attractive. Try it sometime. Try looking at death. It's not attractive. We were dead in our transgressions, dead in our trespasses and sins. Death's not attractive. It wasn't that God would, he just couldn't live without us. It wasn't that he just had to have us, as some would teach. God was lonely, I've heard some say. God was lonely from eternity past, so he finally made man to absolve his loneliness or, or to, to remedy, sorry, to remedy his loneliness. That's heresy from the darkest deepest pits of hell because Jesus is absolutely sufficient absolutely okay with himself 
as the triune Godhead. So he didn't make us because he needed us or because he was bored or because he was lonely. So it wasn't that we were fulfilling his loneliness or remedying his loneliness. It wasn't that we were helpful to him because it says that Jesus died while we were helpless. It wasn't that somehow, you know what, we picked up his slack. No, we weren't helpful to him. We were unattractive, unlovable, helpless, enemies of God, children of wrath is what the scripture says. But then the scripture says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, we have everything to be humble about. We are the passive agents in this life. All good things come from him. All good things that, that, that seemingly come from us first are given from heaven. So we have nothing to be boastful about in and of ourselves, but everything to be humble about. Verse 28, John continues. He doesn't just start with that statement. He continues as we continue. He says, you yourselves, you bear witness that I said I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is just reminding him, listen, this wasn't even my ministry this is the ministry of Jesus. Jesus set me as a forerunner. It's always been about him. I'm just laying out the carpet. I'm just preparing the scene for the guest of honor to come, for everyone to see, for everyone to enjoy. John is quick to say, listen, I need to point you to the one that matters. I think it would do us all well to say, you know what? I'm happy to step aside because this life, this life is for God. This life is for the Father. This life is for the kingdom. If it's by my death that God does these things, or if it's by putting me like Matt Chandler or some of these guys in front of thousands all the time to preach gospel, whatever it is, we're like, you know, it's, it's yours to command. This is your ministry. I'm pointing people to you, and this is exactly what John does, and which is why I think authentic Christianity recognizes the source from which all good things are received. But I also think this, authentic Christianity is driven to joy as opposed to jealousy when considering the works of Christ. Because then John starts to talk about this bridegroom situation and this friend to the bridegroom. What would it look like for you to attend a wedding and you have the bridegroom and you have the bride and then you look over here and you have the maid of honor and you have the best man and they're just gritting their teeth with jealousy. They're seeing the ceremony. They're seeing and hearing the vows. They're seeing the love. They're seeing all of these things that are happening right before their eyes. But you can't help but recognize the jealousy that is brimming within these two people. Why can't they just celebrate the bride and the groom? And John is saying, listen, I'm a friend to the bridegroom. And I celebrate all the good things that he brings about. Why? Because it's not about me. Because the purpose is to celebrate Jesus. I know that there are churches. I know that there are pastors that get jealous of the growth of other churches. And I know that growth happens in all the wrong places all the time for wrong reasons, in consumeristic-type places, in seeker-sensitive places. I understand that. But let's say in good, solid doctrinal churches. Let's say that God is doing a work. God is growing things. And let's say that Haven Ridge is here and we're plowing along with what we have as a small family. And then we look to our right and we look to our left at people that are trying to be just as faithful to the word as Austin and I are. Trying to be just as intentional with the gospel as you are and we are hopefully. We're doing these things but all of a sudden we're seeing all this happen over here and then we get jealous. We get jealous at the work of Jesus. This is no different than John's disciples. And this happens. 
It happens, and you can apply that scenario in other ways. So what does it say about the heart of a man, the heart of man that churns with jealousy, that churns with envy to see Christ work through the means of someone or something other than him? God, why aren't you doing that with me? Why don't the people that I talk to come to Christ? Why is it that he talks to someone or she talks to someone and it seems like everybody follows Jesus? And then you get jealous. You're like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son when the son finally comes home and God has done this restorative work in his life, bringing him to repentance. And then you have the older son who's jealous and he says, what about me? I stayed here. I was faithful. Why didn't you put a ring on my finger, sandals on my feet? Why didn't you kill the fattened calf for me? I'm the faithful one here. He misses the point. I think we can be like that a lot of times. But authentic Christianity is driven to joy as opposed to jealousy when considering the works of Christ. The Christian experience should be brimming with celebrations over Christ's victorious work. Brimming with celebration. If you haven't seen Endgame, it's coming, right? Here's your spoiler. Close your ears if you haven't. I'm sorry. As we're watching this movie, I'm thinking of my buddy Travis. Travis doesn't get geeked out or excited about much, but when it comes to Captain America, he does. There's this moment in this movie where this battle's raging and things are great. You're on the edge of your seat. You're like, man, this is, this is intense. This is crazy. Then all of a sudden you see Thor's hammer just fly across the screen. And whose hand does it land in? Travis's daddy, Captain America. <laughs> and you could hear the emotions of people when this happened. Travis, I think, I think, sounded like a giddy schoolgirl. May have done a toe touch. I don't know. I wasn't sitting right next to him. He was giddy. Woo-hoo! You know, it's something like that. It was like that. Was, Did that come from Travis? You know? But there's celebration. You see that happen, and you are for it. You are for it. Yes, I knew he was worthy the whole time. I called it. I knew it. Now we're excited. This should be the sentiment, I think, when we see Christ's victorious work displayed again and again and again, when he restores marriages, when he brings lost to light, when he does all of these things, our response should be jubilee. Our response should be celebration for these things. Sometimes it's not, though. Sometimes we're used to it and it's boring to us. We're like, "Eh, is it real? And I would say one of the marks of being an authentic follower of Jesus is that when we see God do a work, our response is not envy, it's not jealousy that God's not using us the same way, but it's praise God that these things are happening. I mean, if we really are on the same team, who cares, you know, who cares if the Methodist church over here or the Baptist church over here or the Presbyterian church, you know, or, or, or the non-denominational back here, who cares if there's genuine growth, we celebrate Jesus because where do we all end up? We all end up at the same place as a result of the works of Christ applied to those who believe. So there should be celebration. So I think authentic Christianity is driven to joy rather than envy. Authentic Christianity points people away from themselves or it points someone away from himself and towards Jesus. Listen to verse 30. It says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Popular passage, you've heard this all your life most likely. If not, there it is. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm going to wrap this thing up. Here we go. The legacy of a Christian The legacy of a Christian should say little about himself, but should say everything about Jesus. 
the mantra of our fallen world is to make a name for ourselves. It is. We want to make our name for ourselves. We put people's names on buildings like Trump Tower. If someone gives enough money as a donor, we put their name on a building. I know of some ministers who have a doctorate degree, and they will fight tooth and nail because they want that title to be on the marquee when people drive by. And this is not news. This has always happened. This happened in Genesis 3 where people are more about themselves and more about what they want. And then we see it in the Tower of Babel. We see it where they wanted to build something to show themselves. Say, look what we've done. We want to make a name for ourselves. That's the American mantra. Everyone wants to leave his or her mark. Everyone wants to be remembered, but remembered for what? And at what cost? I promise you this. When we stand before God the Father, all that's going to matter is what we did with his son. Your degree will not matter. Your charitable donations will not matter. Your philanthropy will not matter. Your good parenting will not matter. None of these things will matter if we stand before God and do not have Christ as our advocate. Good parenting is good. Caring for the needs of others is good. But those are not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And we are mistaken Based on what true belief is, if we think that we will stand before God and be okay because we were a philanthropist, because we helped people, because we followed the ways of Mother Teresa, because we did all of these things, we are mistaken if we think that that will be enough because without Christ as the advocate or without Christ as the substitute, these things don't matter. These works are filthy rags. So here's the application. Sometimes we get in the way and we increase instead of decreasing. In a world in which making a name for ourselves is the big issue, the only name people should think of when they consider our lives is the name of Jesus. Because there's no name given among men by which we may be saved. No name in heaven or earth or under the earth where we must be saved but the name of Jesus. So how do we practically decrease? How do we decrease? I want to caution you against some false humility where you're just going around saying horrible things about yourself. That's not the idea. That's not the idea here. It's not so much in what you do to defame yourself, but it's what you do to bring fame to Jesus. Because bringing fame to Jesus is by necessity to decrease yourself. See, the problem is we become Christians, and sometimes what we convey to people is that we've got salvation, we've got Jesus, we've got these things, we've got the gospel, but we no longer need it because we have it. We're good. I received the gospel when I was nine years old. I prayed in that bathtub years and years ago asking the Lord to save me, and I knew that I meant it. I got the gospel. I'm good. But I need to lead people to believe that I need Christ's gospel every day of my life. I need to believe it every day of my life because he has saved me, he is saving me, and he will save me. We just need Jesus in a different way. We don't need him to remove the condemnation of our sin because he's done that. But we need him daily in a different way. We need to believe the gospel daily in a different way. A Christian legacy should say more about Jesus than it does about ourselves. So when we point to ourselves, we set ourselves and others up for failure. Why? Because we are prone to wonder. Do you understand the danger of pointing people to yourself? The danger of causing attention to yourself do you know what the danger is the danger is this they might see you that's the danger 
look at me, follow me, do this, do this, and more eyes are on you, what happens is they will eventually see you. And I'm not saying that there aren't those that we look up to, that we admire, that are mentors or disciple makers in our life. I'm not saying it's wrong to, 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 to lean on people like Chandler, like Platt, and like Piper, and all these others, and say, you know what, they have mentored me from a distance. These are men of God. Nothing wrong with that at all. Philippians is very clear in the way that Paul boasted in Epaphroditus. So there's an element of that that is absolutely fine. But what was admirable about those people is that they labored to point people to Jesus. So that's what we take away from that. Take a look back at the last 24 hours of your life and consider how many times you probably failed or offended God. Your words, your thoughts, your frustrations, your disobedience, your selfishness, your misrepresentation of him as an image bearer. We fall short all the time. A popular verse is popularly misquoted, and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But most of the time I've heard it quoted as, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not what it says, and it changes the meaning. The meaning is, people continually fall. We fall every day. And we misrepresent Jesus, and we are his image bearers. So we don't point people to ourselves because the problem is they might eventually see us. Let me read these last verses. He who has come from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is about, uh, sorry, he who, he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he, is, for, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, in closing, John offers a final reminder in the chapter before introducing a new story. In it, he points people to the saving power found in the person of Christ. He says, in order to be a recipient of the saving power, one must believe. I want you to leave understanding that there is a tremendous danger in oversimplifying what he is saying. There's a danger in oversimplifying. And an over, oversimplification would be to say, all I have to do is acknowledge that a thing exists. Does a parachute in any way help me if I fling myself from a plane, which is really dumb and I wouldn't do that, but if I fling myself from a plane or flung myself from a plane and I'm falling and I'm like, you know what, if I were to pull it, I believe it's going to work because that's what it's designed to do, but I never pull the ripcord, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But I believed that it would do its purpose. I believed that it would work because it's designed to do that. No, the person that is saved from certain death by plummeting from a plane at terminal velocity is by pulling the ripcord and it functioning as it's designed to function. The gospel, Jesus, is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our substitute. And the gospel is given, and its function is to bring men and women from darkness and into the light. But it doesn't happen for people that just acknowledge that a thing exists by just acknowledging that, okay, this is what the gospel does. It's designed to save men and women from hell. 
It's designed to do that. It's designed to bring them into right relationship with God the Father. Yes, anybody can see that. The demons said, it says that the demons believe and they shudder, they tremble with fear in the book of James. So it can't just be believing. If it's that kind of belief, that kind of belief doesn't produce obedience, but it produces disobedience because it's not true belief. If that's the case, it says the wrath of God remains on those people. So there's a danger in an oversimplifying what belief is. There's a difference in believing in a thing and actually exercising that belief in a thing. So to tease out the metaphor, the scripture says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says that, it's like that parachute idea. We don't just believe that he's real. We don't just believe that he will and can do all that he's been sent here to do. But we actually believe by faith and we say, I put my life into your hands. I submit myself. I subject myself to your lordship. I repent of my sins because you are the only one who can rescue me from those sins. See, there's an act of faith and then there's just recognizing that a thing is designed to do a thing. Don't be the latter. Because for those, the wrath of God remains on them. And that's what's at stake. Remember this when you go and you have conversations with virtually everybody that says, yeah, I believe. You have to say, is your belief a belief that leads to obedience or a belief that leads to disobedience? Because what's at stake is the wrath of God for eternity. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the humility of Jesus as he humbled himself and he became a man. He put on flesh and became a servant to seek and to save those who are lost, to rescue a people for himself, a people that you had given him, and to be 100% successful in reaching those. I thank you that I'm counted in that many. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in here who are counted in that many. And I pray that it will be no trivial thing for us, and I pray that our confidence, our belief, our sincerity will be on display for the world to see. Help us today. And if we survive today, help us tomorrow. And if we survive tomorrow, help us then. Because, Lord, I am too weak. I am too weak to make it another hour, let alone be a faithful follower of Christ for the rest of my life. Carry me, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.